going everybody welcome aboard this is our favorite show of the week also known as thirsty thursday uh so today we're going to be having an extra special episode we have our friend zelon stripes on and uh i always forget to do this so i thought you know what today let's go ahead and do it um just remind everybody uh, there, um, the the panel that we put together for Thirsty Thursday is not your average panel, right? Um, it's important to me to give uh, voices to uh, leaders and uh, pioneers and even dinosaurs of our industry, and I say that lovingly, right? Um, because there is so much knowledge from the different facets here that they could bring to the table. And, and, you know, I, I even think about, uh, myself as a lawn care guy, there's so many other lawn care guys I could put in here to replace myself. Um, you know, Ray is unique in the sense that, 
for for decades now, multiple decades. Uh, he's been managing not just uh, uh, lawn care, but extremely what we would refer to as fine turf in Hawaii, and he manages it unlike any other. It's golf course, legitimate golf course style lawn care, and uh, in an applied in a in a business, uh, and that is just. I, it's he's literally the only one in America that I know that does that. And so that is why we have him on the panel. And Mr. DeMay, who is not quite here yet. Um, but <laughs> Pat Kelly, I saw your comment out of the corner of my eye. That made me laugh. And, uh, and Ryan DeMay, obviously, for decades has been in sports turf management. And I don't want to make this to sound like I bring anything special to the table as far as lawn care is concerned because there's so many other lawn care guys out there uh, who are who are awesome. Um, you know, I think about my buddy in in Mount Juliet, uh, Josh Whitaker. I think about my buddy in Atlanta, Georgia, Russell Skipper. Uh, my buddy in Ohio, uh, David Turfner Watkins. You know that um, would would could easily just take my place in this whole thing. Uh, but I, I just I say that too for any of the new people that are tuning in for the first time. Uh, that is why I have brought the panel together in such the way that I have. Uh, and big shout out, of course, to Jay Pink for being our producer. I have to say that the quality of the content that comes out of this place has increased uh, exponentially since uh, he has begun helping me. So always much love to you, Jay Pink, and thank you for all the added effort. And Thank you uh, for the kind words. I'll drop off off the bottle of whiskey as payment uh, tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> so for those of you that are tuning in for the first time, uh, like I said, we have special guests up there on the top right, and that is going to be the Lawn Stripes himself. Uh, we can all go check him out over at uh, the, uh, you can hop on over to the YouTube and type in the Lawn Stripes or in the uh, video description down below, you'll see a link to his channel. Be sure to go over there, uh, hit subscribe and uh, and watch what kind of gasoline he likes to throw on fires over on his uh, channel because that's some inside baseball right there in it, Daniel. Um, oh, yeah. So to get things started off, while we're waiting on Ryan here, I thought we would get a uh, a little bit of of history from you. And uh, so, Dan, the man, if you could give us uh, some information here. So let's start out with your location. What is your grass type? How long have you been doing the lawn care thing? And uh, and tell us a little bit about your social media experience as well. So I am in Cincinnati. Uh, the grass type is mostly tall fescue. There might be a little bit of uh, you know, other crap in the front yard from God knows how long ago that's been sprinkled in there from contractors, whatnot. Um, so I, I originally got the, uh, the, the lawn bug, I'd say probably when I was a wee little Hulkamaniac, um, watching the, the family mow the grass and I wanted to play. And it's like, oh, we you know get on the mower and run around with them. Um, thought it was fun. Um, got a little bit older, 16, 17. Still, uh, you know, starting to mow the yard for the dad. He was working long hours. So I was uh, going out mowing with the uh, the Dixon Zero Turn. See how many of you uh, know that one. And um, so I, I, unfortunately, was never really taught true lawn care from, from my family. You know, they were mow it down low so you don't have to mow it as often. And, you know, they they would mow what uh what I would refer to as NASCAR style all left turns, uh so they would just run around in a bunch of circles yeah you know, and by the time it's done the uh, yard looked like a uh, a snail shell pattern, um so when I was out there mowing and doing all this I finally one day I just happened to see some some long guys actually mowing and they were actually mowing straight lines and it's like an epiphany you know oh, why the hell don't I do that 
So then I started, you know, going through my yard and mowing, you know, a little bit of stripes and starting to play with the hide cut a little bit and, you know, started going from there. Um, so I, I kind of gave me the bug. And then once I finally got the, uh, the lawn that I'm in now, um, I started working with, uh, with that. It was pretty bad starting out, um, very bare, uh, a lot of weeds. And so, uh, unfortunately I had to, uh, hire a certain national lawn care company to help me out until I actually knew what I was doing. Um, so then I, uh, kind of took over, tried doing some things, still failed. Uh, so then I actually started doing a little bit more research and, uh, found, um, a few different YouTube guys. And, uh, so learned from them and then I took another stab at it and the lawn's been, I'll say, uh, it's been looking pretty good since, uh, since then. That's, uh, that's interesting. I, I always find it fascinating to hear about where that kind of flavor come from. You talk about how growing up it was, you know, NASCAR style lawn care, um, what clicked with you? Like, was there, was there a defining moment where you were just like, damn it, no matter what it takes, I'm going to have a badass yard. Or was it just kind of a gradual thing? Like I failed and therefore I must conquer. Uh, I, I think I was, it was still that part where, you know, I, I had that epiphany, you know, where I, I saw these long hair guys going through and laying these, these just badass lawn stripes. It's like, I've, I've, got to do that you know i want to do i want my my house that i live at you know it wasn't my yard it was my my dad's house i had i had to do it and so then from there it's like okay now what about some of these weeds so i'm out there you know in in twenty five thousand square foot lawn with a little you know weed and feed you know with this little handheld thing trying to uh kill some weeds in the yard which you know got me nowhere but you know it was just it was that that mentality that i wanted to you know make things look decent and, and get this hands on and yeah, you know, it just kind of grew from there. Uh, okay. So, um, let's do this. Jay Pink, can we, can we take a look at any of the, the data he has presented to us that we can kind of mm. uh, yeah. fart around with here? Uh, do you want to start with last year or do you want to see this year? Uh, let's start with last year and then we'll work our way up into what happened most recently. All right, so this should be for the front yard last year, 2020. Okay, okay. I don't, I, wow, this is uh, this has been a great show. Super easy. Uh, thanks for coming on, Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. This, I mean, yeah. I think this one we uh we actually kind of looked at, and so the plan was for this one was ammonium sulfate, potassium nitrate, throw some elemental sulfur down, and citric acid at I think one pound per thousand. And so that was pretty much my plan for the whole year. Uh, toward the uh, fall time, I did hit a, a couple bags of uh, Stress X, threw that down, and that was pretty much it. Yeah, I mean, if you're at a hundred parts per million, you know, I'm 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 not really worried about too much. I'm talking about on your on your K here. Your uh, your soil pH is seven point two. Um, I'm guessing you put uh, a little bit of effort into dropping that as well, aside mm-hmm. from just ammonium sulfate. Was that up to that point or after that point that we're looking at uh, on the uh, on the soil test right here? That was so after we hit that, that's when Ray gave me the uh, the ideas of, of doing the elemental sulfur and the citric acid. So after after this point of the uh, soil test, then it was, you know, off to the races with, with all that stuff, throwing it down. 
Okay. Okay. It's pretty it's pretty interesting. All right, let's move on to what we're looking at currently. All right, so here's the front this year. So in All case right. you missed it, yeah, uh, yep. not a huge change. This is this is currently. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wait, yep, do, so. do, do the John. before and after again. Okay, so here is 2020. Okay. And here is 2021. <laughs> okay. Um, it, it, that, I mean, there's, there's a lot of positive movement on this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and Ray, what, what kind of sticks out to you in terms of movement that, that is working towards the side of good right now? Well, I consider a pH drop of 0.2 to be rather significant given how short Daniel's growing season actually is. That is, that is a big movement. W- wouldn't you agree? Yes. That's a pretty big, move, pretty, pretty big movement. Uh, he's able to keep his potassium at about that 100 parts per million and to me, that is big, too, because what you typically see happening is people's potassium keeps on going lower and lower because what they're typically doing is, correct me if I'm wrong, they're hammering the nitrogen, but they're not adding or supplying phosphorus yet. Daniel came to me, and he asked me for basically a green dock style mix that contained equal parts of potassium and nitrogen. And that's, and I think that's been working out for him very well, actually. I love seeing the sulfate number come up there too. Uh, and uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> Jay Pink, can you do a before and after again? Yeah. Uh, 2020. Yep. 2021. So, and I'll tell you what correlates interestingly there for me is that as his sulfur level increased, his iron level decreased, right? And as, as we, we all know, sulfur has that weird interaction with iron, right? And I think you've got multiple facets here that are working in, uh, in tandem to uh, help facilitate the utilization of that iron you've got in your soil. Number one, you reduce soil pH. Therefore, iron availability is going to increase. Uh, number, and especially if you're making applications of citric acid or elemental sulfur, um, you are freeing up that iron to be taken up and utilized by the plant. Again, you're also raising sulfur levels. And remember, everybody at home, I got an email about this the other day that somebody told me, why would I ever use citric acid when all I need to do is apply more sulfated fertilizers to lower soil pH. Sulfate SO4 is pH neutral. It does not move the needle. So when we're looking at sulfur, elemental, when we are looking at sulfur on a soil test, it is not elemental sulfur. We are looking at sulfate typically is what that is, is measuring. Sulfate is not moving the needle on your, on your pH. Ammonium nitrogen does, citric acid does, elemental sulfur does, sulfate does not move the needle. So you can apply all the potassium sulfate in the world and it ain't going to do a damn thing for you. 
All right, now that that's out of the way, there is an interaction between sulfur and iron and manganese, specifically sulfate and iron and manganese. So interesting how all of those in tandem kind of work together. Let me ask, Daniel, did you feel the need to apply more or less iron over the last year? I actually applied less. Um, I can probably count on one hand how many times I actually sprayed any uh, ferrous ammonium sulfate. It may be one, maybe two times. And that was just try to get a little bit of a, a darker green pop out of the front yard compared to the backyard. Sure. Did you feel like you had better color over the course of the year than you did the previous year? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, somebody just asked about a 2100 with 14% sulfur. I don't know what that is. Uh, most 2100s I, I, I know are. What is, what is that? That is act, the actual full analysis for ammonium sulfate. I thought it had Something a higher like sulfur percentage. I thought it was a 210020 is what I thought. 20? I could be wrong about that too, uh, but it would be weird for somebody to put together urea with a lot of sulfur. I mean, the numbers just don't line up for somebody doing that. No, it it doesn't. You know that that's definitely not a urea. I think I think it may be a typo, Ray, because it's a twenty one zero zero twenty four sulfur. Uh, yes, Nicholas, 24. when you hear us say ammonium sulfate, that's what we're talking about. Is a twenty one zero zero with twenty four percent sulfur. Um, and again, the caveat there is that ammonium sulfate is not acidifying because of the sulfur in the bag. Ammonium sulfate is acidifying because of the ammonium. As ammonium goes through its whole conversion process over to nitrate and all that crap, we're releasing what four hydrogen ions into the into the soil. Is that right? Actually, you're yeah you're you're throwing in four hydrogen ions H pluses into the soil for every ammonium ion that you add. So you're actually getting a very strong acidifying effect that can and will add up if you're dealing with a soil that's already acid, for example. Yeah, and to also make that clear is that ammonium sulfate alone probably isn't enough to move. If you, if you have a legitimate high pH soil, ammonium sulfate alone is not going to be the difference between you having a pH of 7.8 and a pH of 7.0. That, that's not what that means. If you go out and you use it for a season, you're not going to lower it that much. However, as a tool in the toolbox as part of a comprehensive plan where you are addressing the soil pH on a multi, as a multifaceted approach where you've got uh, elemental sulfur coming out, you've got citric acid coming out, and you've got ammonium sulfate coming out, now all of a sudden you can actually make some real movement. Uh, John Cruz asked, does ammonium nitrate acidify to an extent? And Ray, I'll let you answer this. This is a, kind of an interesting one. It does. And the thing is, is that, again, I don't count on it as the absolute be-all, do-all, end-all answer to soils that do need acidification. It is beneficial, but 
it's still not your answer. For example, I can't tell somebody just use ammonium sulfate or ammonium nitrate as your nitrogen source and you can forget about your soil pH over 7.2. That it doesn't work that way. So yeah, it's, I hope it's that nowhere answered. near <laughs> as acidifying as ammonium sulfate is. Um, and there's a chart online. What about anhydrous ammonia, Ray? Wow. Wow. Anhydrous is another one where, think about it, you are applying pure NH3. And farmers that apply a lot of anhydrous will frequently have to lime a lot because they're, do you know, by the way, do, do folks understand what anhydrous actually is or, as a fertilizer no. analysis? No. Okay. Anhydrous is 8200. Come again? 8200. <laughs> yes. Okay. So white lightning as they call such high concentrated adult beverages up here in my area. And you put that down <laughs> to 10 pounds per 1000, right? <laughs> yep. Yep. Throw her down. Throw her down. I mean, uh... only if you're a Bermuda <laughs> <dominator>. <laughs> Exactly. Throw throw her down. I mean, I invite somebody to pump in five pounds of anhydrous per thousand square foot and, for example, shank that into their even their Bermuda turf. Get back to me a week after they've done it. <laughs> I'd, like to, I'd like to hear of the results. <laughs> mm. A little toasty. A little toasty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So we also have uh, back from last year and back from this year. If we want, yeah. Compare. Let's take a look at those two. Let's take a look at those two. All right. So here's back from 2020. Uh, yeah. And here is the backyard this year. Okay. So now last year, 2020. This year, 2021. Interesting. Uh, Ray, um, I'm not super in tune with uh, minute rates of boron. Um, so having three and a half parts per million and that being considered very high. Um, I know there are some issues with uh, plant performance with molybdenum. Are there any issues with boron in excess concentrations in the soil? Sure are. Uh once you get, I want to say, above five parts per million, that starts to become very toxic to most broad-leaved plants. Uh, you're actually very fortunate in that boron is rather well tolerated by most grasses. Your toxic level for boron is way above that five part per million mark. In other words, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of this, but I've seen it on on the internet too, where supposedly somebody can apply, I think, one to two ounces of sodium borate 
which is also known as borax, borax. as your weed control for something called Creeping Charlie. One to two ounces Ugh. per thousand square foot. You spray it on once. You let it water in. And then supposedly, because that's toxic to especially shallow-rooted broadleaf plants, the Creeping Charlie takes that up and then it gives up. But I then have to think now, how are your trees that have roots extending into the lawn going to receive that high rate of boron? So I actually don't recommend anybody do that, even if they do have a Creeping Charlie problem. I, I, I tell them to stick with something that's uh, a little more predictable. Yeah, sodium borate. Uh, I've uh, <laughs> I've seen it used on uh, uh, what what was it? Um, I believe it was a over the counter solution for cicada killers. I think is what was what people were uh, uh, spraying like a powder into the holes, and uh, it did indeed smoke the turf where. Uh, all of that sodium borate was placed. And I don't even know if, if, if borax actually kills cicada killers at all, but um, that was that was what was re recommended to them, and they used it. And boy, did it absolutely roast the grass. Uh, for everyone asking, Ryan is trying to fix his camera. He's having some tech issues. Uh, we'll do. He'll get it. He'll get it. Then he, he can come on and... And give us give us a little rundown. All right, uh, <laughs> Matt, uh, you want to see? Yeah, I might have a question ahead. before we before we go over to the uh, to the my soil comparison. So on the on the front yard, and this one kind of threw me in for a loop because I haven't been using any other <laughs> granulars. The magnesium front yard last year compared to this year, this year's actually went up, and. Being that I haven't applied any sort of fertilizers that have magnesium in it, trying to think why those numbers would go up, other than maybe there might be limestone or something in the soil somewhere that would be naturally releasing the high rates of magnesium. And maybe the calcium. Possible. Could be in your water as well. That would be my guess is that you have calcium and magnesium in your water. Yep. So that is actually, Daniel, how hard is your water coming out of your taps? I say ow when I take a shower. I don't know. I don't, I don't really know how hard it is. I mean, I haven't, I haven't okay. done any like type of water test, but I, I would imagine there's a little bit of sediment in it. Yeah. Actually, when I say hard water, I'm actually talking about dissolved calcium and or magnesium in the water because the way you can tell, for example, is do you have a problem if tap water ever dries on glass or paint? Yes. Yep. When we when we don't okay. use a rinse aid, there is some little bit of water spotting and stuff. And we have actually killed a couple water heaters. There's been sediment in the bottom of the uh, water heater. Okay, okay. Then what that means is that your tap water 
is contributing a significant amount of calcium and magnesium to your soil. So you are always going to be monitoring and watching your soil pH. And when that's your situation, you are looking at thinking about citric acid as long as you want your pH to remain under 7.5. That's just life. <laughs> yeah, I figure I was going to be applying it for quite a while anyway to get it where where I want it. But yeah, it makes sense if I'm watering and there's calcium in it. Yeah, I've got to got to compensate. Yeah, I mean that's just uh, because I know I've told other people that the real fix for their soil issues is to start watering from some kind of a rig that injects small amounts of acids and always keeps your water pH at, say, 6.5. It's are done you on, on, like, the... You, uh, you, are you on municipal water? Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. saw the question. Yeah, I, I kind of wish I had a well, but, yeah, it's it's city water. You wouldn't want a well in your area, trust me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I kind of spoke too soon on that. As soon as I said, I'm like, ah, eh, then again. No, it's okay. It's okay. It's, uh, I mean, Ohio in general, different areas that you go and the different aquifers that we drill into and pump out of all have um, a variety of issues with high bicarbonates, high calcium, high magnesium, and your area in arsenic. particular. Yeah. <laughs> arsenic nitrates you know <laughs> lead all those good things i mean just don't make them well water like they used to that's the, that was the best part about drinking that stuff at like the park or something like that where they had that little you could pump it right out of the ground and drink that like sulfur really iron tasting water mm. Mm, that was good but anyhow <laughs> oh my goodness that's probably why that's probably why my brain is fried right now probably <laughs> <laughs> have you been drinking hose water again uh, I, I would drink hose water like today. I have no problem with that. I think. Listen, that... I never had an issue with it either, but I, I will, I will tell you there was one time I drank from a hose and this was back in my true green days. Uh, I think I was at true green and man, dude, my stomach was wrecked for all of six months. Like there was nothing positive happened happening with my digestive system for a solid six months. I was convinced that, yeah. I had a worm. Well, I mean, where was that hose before you put it in your mouth? <laughs> in the mulch. Oh, all right. Well, that that would do you know, it. That would do it. You, you see, I, you know, there was there wasn't any beneficial bacteria <laughs> that could fluorate and produce photosynthesis and this and that and put a warm front into your side that makes your nitrogen bloom. That didn't happen. I, I don't know. I grew a watermelon in my stomach. Does that count? <laughs> <laughs> that hose got you pregnant with diarrhea. Yeah. yeah, it got me with something, man. I'm telling you, dude. See, it was a solid six months. Uh, but then it went back to normal, and uh, and boy, I was good. <clears throat> um, all right, so all kind of interesting stuff, taking a look here. But let's, let's move on to... Um, uh, you said you have a mycelial test as well? Yep, I did a uh, comparison. Yeah, there you go. 
my soil last uh, this year to front yard this year. Okay. All right. Let's make it a little bigger here. Let's do a little rundown a for of that. what we see. There is a pill for that. This won't last longer than four hours, though, so don't worry. Nah. <laughs> so I'm going to high-five someone. <laughs> All right. Uh, so a quarter point difference in your pH. Uh, let's see. So um, you said this is both from this year, right? Both this year, exact same soil samples. I threw it all into one bucket. I even recorded it, so YouTube video will come out. So people will, you know, oh, you're, you're messing with the test. No, no, here's it's coming out of the same bucket. Here's me putting it into the bag. Here's me putting it into a little cup of water that looks like it would be a urine sample. And here's both of them going into the mailbox. <laughs> So somebody emailed me the other day and, and told me verbatim that if I did not understand the MySoil test, then I should not talk about the MySoil test. And, um, you know, one thing I would like to address about that is let me explain a little bit how this test works, right? So what you do is you take your test, you put it into a jar you, with, with deionized water, and there's a capsule in there, and that capsule contains a resin. And that resin is referred to as an ion exchange resin. So it is a blend of multiple resins that adsorb and not absorb, but adsorb cations and anions. So our cations such as K, mag, cal, or our anions such as N, P, uh, and what is it? Uh, 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 boron or molybdenum? What is it? It's boron, isn't it? Boron, yes, boron. Okay, I got that out. So what you do is, is you, you package this container, right? And, and basically, whatever dissolves in the water, that resin being able to adsorb ions, it, it, it captures whatever dissolved in the water from your soil. So it would be similar if you did a water extraction test with your soil, right? The difference is, is that there's a certain amount of residence time that occurs uh, where it sits with this capsule in the DI water in your soil. Uh, whereas typically with a, uh, with a water extraction, that's going to be done kind of in real time. So from that point, when you receive the resin, you will, you will use hydrochloric acid um, to strip the resin of the ions that have been absorbed. And then from there, you take your measurements of what absorbed into that resin and quantify that into a chart such as you see here. And that's how you derive these answers. Then from how they take what they measure in terms of ions in the soil and turn that into uh, actionable data, is um is is secret right that is proprietary technology and i'm i fully understand that people need to have proprietary proprietary technology and that's that's good and that's fine the problem is as we see here the interpretations not only are the measurements of what actually gets pulled into the resin off relatively significantly um, the recommendations and even their interpretation of what gets absorbed and their quantification of what was absorbed 
is also not really comparable to anything else we have in the industry to be able to go to and say, ah, uh, yes, here we go. This makes sense. So for instance, we're seeing like we'll look at boron, for example. Um, in this particular test, we are uh, low in boron. But as we can see, we are not low in boron. Or in copper, we have one and a half parts per million, which would be considered adequate. You're not below any kind of minimum level of sustainable nutrition. However, here, uh, we fall into the low category where it would be necessary. We are outside of optimal range, and therefore, we must make an application. Uh, same with zinc. If we compare those two, we are clearly in an adequate range on uh, on a malic 3 test. However, uh, uh, we are not here. Now, what's interesting is that manganese, on a Malik 3 test, the total of 57 parts per million, uh, uh, manganese is found oddly in check, right? So in this particular instance, you know, it's going to tell you that manganese is good, but you can see you have adequate room to continue to play with manganese according to your Malik 3 test, right? And so if you're asking yourself which one is good versus the other and which one should you pay attention to or not pay attention to, um, really, here's the thing, is that there are there is decades of research science behind the various testing methods, uh, including Malik-3 um, or Malik-1 or Olsen or Bray or ammonium acetate or whatever the case may be. And so you could take this and say, okay, this is a screenshot in time of what the root sees. Yes, but it's still not a total picture because the root has the ability to find things in the soil as long as there is nitrogen present that otherwise it wouldn't necessarily be able to not find uh, if there was no adequate nitrogen present, right? Uh, and that starts diving into the deep tales of root exudates. So all of that to say is that I have a very good understanding of exactly how this test functions. But the reason why I cannot recommend this is because in this instance, it states that we are depleted in most of our metals that need to be applied. However, as we can see, we are nowhere near what would be considered deficient, uh, deficient levels out of those. And in true form or fashion, the only way to... Uh, or the easy way to all of a sudden make those things more readily available would be to, uh, one, continue to work on acidifying the soil, or two, continue to apply nitrogen and allow root exudates to do their work. So that way you're not stuck into a situation where you have to run five, six, seven, eight tests a year to see what's in solution and therefore make your application by application, soil test by soil test in order to be able to have data that's quantifiable or actionable. Uh, and, um, and also uh, the pH thing, right? And here we can see we're not too terribly off on pH. You know, we're 0.25, but we've seen it as high as a full point off of the pH. And so that can be a problem as well. So anyway, I just wanted to make clear, I promise, I know how the thing works, but uh, I can't say that there's anything specific about this that is giving me uh, really the type of data I would need to be able to execute, to design and execute a turf management program on it. Well, right, so I'll throw something in. No, go ahead. Go ahead, Daniel. I'll just throw out there. So, so from just a, a Joe Schmo DIY standpoint, comparing these two soil tests as well, just looking at it from a cost perspective. So 
when when you buy one of these these my soil tests okay you get this pretty little package or whatever and and ship to your door and it has prepaid envelope and all that it was 34 dollars shipped to my house the waypoint i sent two soil samples in one box sent it off to them and that was 33 dollars you know i'll, I'll let that one uh, kind of sink in you know cost perspective it, it's a hell of a lot cheaper to go through and not just waypoint i threw it out there i'm, I'm not affiliated with any i don't get any affiliate links or anything with that crap you know waypoints good people spectrum extension office whomever you know no no bms here so you know send it off to any of them and, and you're going to get you know an industry standard you know soil test back and it's a hell of a lot cheaper just throwing it out there yeah and so matt I don't know if you know what you're talking about. I'm I'm very disappointed. But <laughs> like I read that book on 101 ways to make money on YouTube. I was reading a book this week on positivity, you know, and I hope that maybe later that Dan will pull that guitar out and we can all sing Kumbaya around the fire <laughs> while nobody's wearing PPE. <laughs> now, getting back to our subject at hand. Uh I, I, everything you said is correct as I understand it, right? As I understand it. Um, the first point I'll make is that anybody is welcome to come on the show and discuss not to push, not to promote, not to do anything like that because we have no commercial interest other than good agronomy. If you want to explain yourself, if you want to you know, just talk turf, I don't think there's anybody here that's going to be threatening rude, crass, or anything otherwise uh, just to talk turf, right? So... The things that have come out recently that have concerned me is that um, first it was, you know, it was pushed as, hey, just do this and you take one test and you're good. And now the trickle truth, you know, the drip, drip, drip starts of, well, you know, it's only a test. It's only a snapshot in time. It's only a one app test, which is accurate because, you know, ion resin and the way it works, as you describe, very similar to a test that we've had around for a long, long time known as a saturated paste extract where we take... DI water and we react it with the soil there, right? And there's a, a uh, approved testing method to do this, right? And we can get quantifiable data out of it. Now, I'm not saying either one of these is right or wrong. I'm just saying that, again, from a cost perspective, you look at that, you know, there's a variety of labs that will do that for anywhere from $30 to $50. Um, but the point that I'd like to make is that this is all about temporal uh, space, right? So we're talking about time. So the, some of the soil tests or some of the testing that we've talked about here uh, over these last few episodes has been, you know, your standard um, soil inventory audit, right? With a Malik 3, with, a, with an acid extractant, um, like a Malik 3, like a Malik 1, a Morgan, one of those, right? And that test is going to give you data that you can probably go on in um, a sandy or a low CEC soil for probably a year. And feel comfortable that you know how you move the needle there is going to be uh, pretty predictable. In a higher CE soil, CE soil uh, or a heavier soil, you might be able to get two years out of it if it's not super intensively maintained, right? So I'm paying like what Daniel said. I'm paying you know 33 bucks or whatever for a couple of samples. I think is what he said um, to get that data that could last you two years. You know you can certainly sample before that, but that long. Now with the saturated paste and with what's come out about my soil is that a saturated paste extract test is really good for, you know, maybe four to eight weeks, something like that. 
you know, so it really is the way that it's intended to be used is every app. We're taking that sample, we're doing a saturated paste extract, and then we're going to make a judgment, a decision of what we're going to apply next based on those numbers, right? And they're going to fluctuate a lot because you can even uh, divide up a sample. I think there's a paper on this um, from uh, Dr. Caro, Larry Stoll out of Pace Turf that they did probably, gosh, it's been probably 20 years ago, maybe even 18 years ago, talking about uh, saturated paste extracts and how they worked and what they can be used for and what they shouldn't be used for. And what was discussed there mainly was just that it's a good indicator for like electrical conductivity and some of the salt issues that are present you know, in the Western United States and some other areas of the country. But as far as nutrients go, it's, again, it's that snapshot in time. And if you're not Johnny on the spot, it's very, very tough um, to get those apps to line up and, and uh, be calibrated with the data that you're seeing or correlate with the data. So that's, that's again, it's, it's like now, okay, you're telling me that I got to do this test really like three, four, five, six times a year for the results to continue to be accurate. And not only that, but the recommendations, that's what's the key, the recommendations to be accurate. And the last one, we don't get spend too much time on it, but the tissue testing, right? So we're taking uh, clippings off of a putting green, off of a lawn, whatever. They dry those down and uh, tell us how much uh, of dry weight of each nutrient's in there, right? And based on that, we can make um, some calculated guesses on what nutrients we need to apply uh, to the plant there's companies that are doing this commercially right now and offering this as a service, particularly in golf, that you know have a lot of uh, good reviews, a lot of um, fanfare behind them right now. And again, certainly nothing wrong with it if you want to do it that way. But you're living on the razor's edge, like as Ray talks about sometime, um, you know, and, and likes to make fun of golf course superintendents. But it is literally, you know, living on the edge of not too, not too bad, but um, that's that's what they live with, and that's how they do it because. They want just the right inputs for that next three to seven days and the next three to seven days. And they're willing to adjust it and play with it. So it's all about how frequently you want to want that data, how much you're going to move it. And then Matt, to your last point there about the calibration of these tests, right? So in particular, you know, a lot of the knock on um, testing methods over the years has been the calibration piece. So, you know, BCSR versus SLAN. So, uh, you know, we don't have to get too too deep into it, but the recommendations that universities or academics or other labs would put out and say, hey, you need to have 150 parts per million of um, potassium for your soil and your turf to be healthy. Well, originally, a lot of that data was um, extrapolated from corn plants and other forage crops, right? There wasn't a whole lot of ground-tested data. And only here recently, probably within the last 20 or 25 years especially, um, has that really come into focus? There was some stuff done definitely in the 70s and 80s that helped that that cause, but uh, definitely became a bigger issue as golf proliferated and we needed to find out more about how to become more economical with our fertilizer choices for plant health and other reasons, right? So all that said, you know, to say that you can't talk about it because you don't know about it, I, I'm not sure what we don't understand. And if there is something that we don't understand that we've misconstrued or don't have right, I would welcome uh, those folks or whomever else can explain it to us better and set us straight to come talk. And again, you know, totally, uh, you know, in a, in a curious fashion, I'm not, you know, no Duke set, no white glove treatment, just right there in the middle of, I'm just interested to learn more. So 
that's my piece. Ray, do you have anything to say about this? Ray, I think you're muted. Oh, he's going off too. It's a great speech. I can oh, tell. Oh yeah, yeah, look at him. I, he's sweating. He's, uh, yeah, his <laughs> eyebrows are curling up. Damn Ray, it, you're, Ray, you're still not sending in any audio. He's really Ray going in so on it too. I know he is so ramped up. Look at him. Wait. No, nope. still no audio, right? Nope. Still no still audio. Nothing. All right. Continue so, working well, on that, and when you get it okay. fixed, just start talking there over it. There, there it is. Oh, there, it is. there it is. There it is. All right. Here it is. Okay. Okay. Start all over my again. My thought on this. Yeah. <laughs> Here's my thought on this whole my soil controversy is that number one, anytime you are talking about a saturated paste type test, which a my soil test is. Those tests are performed according to a timed exposure. And what a timed exposure means is that your lab technician takes in your soil sample, then blends it with water, allows a specified contact time, and then he runs the tests versus with my soil, you stick that in the mail in that cup with the ion exchange capsule and the deionized water. Uh, how long is that soil in contact with the water? How long? Because the reason why I'm asking how long is because when you have soil with especially nettles present, when they're in contact with water, they all go through what's called a reduction oxidation reaction. And that re reduction oxidation reaction can then make some metals more available, some metals less available. And in addition to doing that, you then have the matter of your soil pH literally changing over time versus what it actually is. All you got to do is just saturate it with water and the reason why this is a known issue to soil scientists is because they know this happens in the rice fields, for example, that get... What happens in a rice field, guys? Uh, they go Gets through what? a period called flood. Right, right. And so if you take a soil sample from the mud during the flood period, Matt, that result is not going to be the same as your soil test taken when the field is dry. It's to all the numbers are totally different. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask all of you too, other than the epic bad weather that I have in Hawaii, do you know of any times when grass is kept under flood conditions for prolonged periods intentionally or unintentionally intentionally uh no that's not a thing it's not a thing right i mean you wouldn't for example ryan run the irrigation on one of your fields so that it's underwater for like four or five days not happening. only if coach says and no 
Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Only if a team from the desert is coming to play, right? Then you make yeah, it a swamp. I mean, right. I mean, if he said run the <laughs> irrigation for six hours or do 60 up-downs, I'm all in, man. That's it. <laughs> okay. Okay. And I, and I know for myself, I'd never subject soil or a, or a turf area to a condition where it's literally underwater for a prolonged period of time. I just wouldn't do it. Uh, I know it happens to me when it rains for a week straight and it won't stop, but then that's not under my control. <laughs> so that is no, my main yeah. point. You know, that's my main point about this whole ion exchange saturated soil paste test where if we wanted the test to even be consistent and uniform, why not have people send in that soil sample dry? They saturated at the lab for a timed amount, you know, period, like say, let's say no more than eight hours of contact time, for example, and then they run the test. Then I could and start to agree. So it's kind of a theoretical hypothesis here, the theoretical hypothesis, that's redundant, but um, is that they are relying on the uh, redox oxidation to, um, to make available those rather insoluble metals. Okay, that's really playing devil's advocate, but again, why, why is it showing low, would you then? subject exactly? Yeah, why does it show low? Why does it show low? Exactly. And what and why do some things you know go way up? And so and again, this goes back to the my premise of turf grass and ornamentals are not grown in saturated conditions. Only ornamental I know of that lives in saturated conditions is a water lily. Then in that case, I'd say, okay, I'd send in my my sample from my water lily tub for to my soil and have them run the test on it. And then I would believe the test there because that duplicates the conditions that that plant is growing in at all times. Yeah, and that, that's the other thing too. If I if I remember from that Caro uh, and Stoll paper way back, and again, it's, it's a long time ago, but I think their their thing was that you could take like what Daniel did, right? He took one bucket, right? Two soil samples, one bucket. We've all seen the video or we're about to, right? About to. And the uh, premise there was that you could divide up the stuff that was going to get a saturated paste extract. And because of how those metals solubilized, right, you could get different readings from the same subsample, right, on down the line. So if I took that big bucket and I scooped out two cups at a time, I might get different numbers each time, right? And you Maybe you could from Malik 3 or whatever, but I think those are more stable in terms of what you're pulling out with that acid. So and that's my other concern is just as a professional, right? 
is looking at that and saying, okay, if I if I have a Malik three phosphorus value, right, that I can, that I get back as a data point, I know how to work with that. I know how to adjust that, right? Such as to say that if I do the same thing with um, the ion exchange resin, am I going to have the same thing? So what are these calibrated to? What are these calibrated on? And I know that they said they did some work. I, I've seen, you know, some video and some interviews and things like that in, in which, um, you know, one of their uh, company officers, representatives has said that, you know, we did some, you know, calibration with, um, I believe they said, you know, soil, Malik 3, and looking at, I think they said tissue samples as well. I think they were trying to, to correlate all three of those data points together to figure out what worked and what didn't. But how wide, how widely was that tested? How many areas of the country, different turf types, different soils? And I know that some of this was covered, but again, like that's the trust factor, right? As what you're putting into that to say that, okay, what you're giving me in terms of the value proposition is that you're giving, you're giving me data I couldn't get anywhere else. And I just don't know that that's accurate, at least from a professional standpoint, at least from a professional, you know, if it's easy for a homeowner to do, and you feel like you want to rip off two or three of these a year. Yeah. Is it going to help? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's better than doing nothing, I guess, but it's also like, is it the most accurate thing? And are you getting good sound recommendations off of it? And what are those based on? And that's the only thing that uh, I, I struggle with, you know, from a, again, from a professional standpoint. And so some folks might say that I'm being negative. I'm not trying to be negative. I'm just trying to be skeptical and, and, you know, prove it to me, show it to me and let us see it work. So, you know, when this becomes more widely adopted in professional turf and when they can push it out and convince, you know, folks like Ray and myself to uh, venture into this market to figure out, okay, how can this work for me as a professional, then I might, you know, be interested in looking at it, but I'm not, and I'm not seeking it out right now. I'm just saying that in general, I know what I trust and what I trust is just based on sound science that's replicable, repl replicable and known um, in an open way, right? A very transparent way. Yeah, and you know, as how many of these have we looked at now of comparing two different tests, and we see pretty much the same discrepancies across the board, right? Uh, micronutrients are always typically off. Um, uh, pH is across the board, always off. And, and so, you know, again, like here we would be in another situation where, um, you know, we'd be purely over applying micronutrients for no real reason in this, in this particular instance. So, you know, based on the data that we have in front of us that we see, which is in the dozens of soil test range versus, uh, versus, you know, I'm sure they calculate thousands of soil tests and that's fine. Uh, but if it's consistently off, if everything we see is consistently off, um, then how all of a sudden do you integrate that? And uh, if you're going to take that test at every interval, um, again, coming at it from the lawn care perspective, uh, who has the time or budget to be able to do that? Because budget is always my main concern. And uh, and so if the science is already there and in place for uh, a certain piece of technology, are we really discovering anything new? 
uh, or are we just putting lipstick on a wheel and calling it a brand new wheel? Or inventing a problem that's already been solved. That's a good right? point too. But, yeah. I mean, that's just, I'm not, I, I, again, I'm, I'm not trying to be negative. I hope it's not taken that way, but even if it is, then I'm sorry, but it's just being skeptical. And again, I implore those that know what they're talking about. If there is a way to, to correct us, set us straight, help us understand better, would love to sit down and have that conversation live. Yep. And, and you can, uh, you can send us a mail at mail at the grass factor TV. And, uh, and that will go to the appropriate people to, uh, to get that set up. I'm talking to you, J pink. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> our handler, um, our handler will get that set up. Yeah, no doubt. Um, Hey, so Daniel, I got to ask this because this is always my favorite thing to ask anybody. What has been your biggest fail maintaining your property? Oh, well, uh, this was pretty good laugh among some of you guys. Um, so I did the, uh, a full backyard renovation, uh, I guess going on three years now, something like that. And, um, so it, it involved in, uh, tearing down an old play set and getting rid of a deck, putting in a, a patio. So there was a bunch of, of dirt. And so I pretty much killed half the lawn from that being renovated. So I decided, what the hell, let's kill the whole yard. You know, make, let's make it all consistent and, and nice because I'm, I'm a little CDO. So I'd rather have, you know, the whole yard be dead than half the yard dead or everything, you know, green and some of it different species, whatever. So I decided to just nuke the whole damn thing. So went across, nuked it all, and I needed to do some leveling. I got a hold of a, a company. Apparently, they're more of a uh, uh, excavating company. So I had them give me some topsoil. Yeah, that right there. So uh, I uh, brought a bunch of that soil in, and apparently it was uh, pretty alkaline. And um, didn't go so well, so it turned pretty much into concrete, and I was playing hell with that for quite some time, trying to get that under control. Um, so grass didn't want to grow there, so I just had to keep fighting with it, and keep fighting with it, and sometimes it would get uh, flooded out. And eventually it, you know, eventually it worked out, but yeah, it was not a, a happy, probably good year so the wife yelled at me why'd you kill the whole lawn yeah never let you live it down ever nope always judging nope. I'll, I'll, always i'll be 80 years old she'd be like remember that time you killed the whole backyard back there in yes. 2019 i yes, can't I believe you did that yep and I, those I, of you that are not married they, they do remember that you will be 80 years old she'll remember that day uh, I know damn well she's probably upstairs watching the stream, so I'm I'm probably going to go ahead and sleep on the couch tonight. That's fine. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, she, hopefully she'll let you take your pillow from the bed downstairs, and you won't have to sleep with the little throw pillows. I just hope for right, you, and then you're safe. Yeah, that's when you know you've really lost. Or worst case scenario, you do have a nice shed to sleep in. <laughs> that, hmm. yeah. that's true. Like a little tree house, but it's not in a tree. You know? Have you ever burned I've, I've down that... your own shed? No, I'll leave that to you. Okay, just making sure. I listen. You can throw stones if you want, but I was that was a friendly question. That's that's, that's nope, an I honest mistake, though, man. That's an honest mistake. Yeah, 
You get, yeah. You get all those guys I, that I are like, well, I got topsoil. Yeah, I got I got this topsoil. It's real good. Now, if you're down where Matt Martin lives, you got some options because they're going to be like, y'all want the brown dirt, the black dirt, or the red dirt. And that's I mean, you, <laughs> got, you got you got a few options down there. Now, up here, right. it's mostly only the brown dirt that you get. It's only the brown dirt. So, yep. And yeah, I did not know brown, that first time. Yep, first time ordering topsoil, they they came in with the truck, dumped it, and I'm looking at them like, huh, I expected black dirt. I guess not. Yeah. So you got you got yeah. the taupe. You got the taupe. I got dirt. the taupe, yeah, and that's just yeah, it's nobody's gonna like taupe ever. Yeah. Very unappealing. You know, I, buying topsoil to me is the biggest racket in all of landscape supplies, and uh, it no mulch mulches me- us mulches. Mulches, yeah, because you're why, pay, why here. I don't know what it's like. Down, oh, dude, it's a it's a cartel. I mean, it, I don't know what it's like down there, but here, you t- you take it to the mulch processing plant. You take your yard waste there, right? So if you're a landscaper and you've got limbs you cut up or landscape debris or anything like that, you take it there. The landscape debris gets composted, all the wood gets chipped up, turned into mulch. You turn around, come back in three months, they've chipped it up, processed it, dyed it. And you buy the stuff that you dumped for $45 a ton and you buy it back for $32 a yard. That's a racket. Yeah. And that's uh, that's relatively high price for mulch too. I got to say compared to what I see in the area. Well, I haven't looked mm-hmm. recently. Um, it's been, it's been a good four or five years since I've bought any mulch, but um... <laughs> you should get back in the mulch game, you know? No, wagon, no, absolutely <laughs> not. I'm not going to. And well, if 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 I can still get it at the prices I was getting it, hell, I may house it right here in the driveway and sell it by the shovel fool. So take me through this. Like, how did you? Because uh, I'm sure this is a situation that everybody faces out there. And, and I know I've talked to uh, like Ryan Nor about buying sand and stuff like that before. But like, what was the what was your process? Like, how did you go look for it? What did you find? And how helpful were the folks that you were dealing with? Pretty much. I just saw a sign on the side of the road said, fill dirt. <laughs> that there was a, uh, there's, there's just an excavation company. It was, it was pretty close to me. So I could have gone through, you know, a nursery who also had the brown dirt, or I could have gone to this place who apparently also had the brown dirt or, you know, some other place that has a spray painted sign that says fill dirt. That's probably brown dirt. So, I could take my pick, so I just kind of called them up and, and went up there, and they actually asked if I wanted to look back there, so hindsight, maybe I should have looked at it, but I didn't, so they dropped it off, and then um, actually when I did the uh, the shed, I actually needed to get a little bit more filled dirt, so I figured, aha, I know those other guys sold me the brown dirt, so I'm going to go to the other place, so I went to the other place, brought my, my truck up there, <laughs> they came out there. <laughs> with uh with the bulldozer and and i told my one of the yard of dirt and they're like are you sure that's two thousand oh pounds of dirt i'm like oh shit maybe give me just ha- uh half a yard because i don't want to kill my truck shake yeah <laughs> so so they, they came out there and and i've those that have, have seen my my truck and, and some of the videos i've got an 86 f-150 so i didn't want to kill that truck so <laughs> they, they came out there gave it a little shake and I was pretty much, you know, like Cheech and Chong, just throwing sparks out, out of the back, you know, on the way home where it was just dragging. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, it was, it was not happy, but that, that truck took it like a champ and it got me home and I got more brown dirt. 
Well, that's good. And like I said, I know that's a problem in a lot of places. And I hear folks that are trying to find good quality materials to work with. And that's so important, you know, to, to be able to do that because well, what you, you're a living example. I mean, that, that video is great. Uh, you know, a great warning to everybody that picking the wrong material or having the wrong material brought to you can lead to some serious delays, uh, in realizing your desired outcome. And so, Again, just doing your homework on the front end. That's that's it. Hey, it was a tough lesson, but I don't think nope. that's that's a, that's not a huge fail other than the judgment piece, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. I'm you not should, judging hey. you. I've watched so many people. I'm not do judging it over you years, and I just I, I let it just ooze out of my ears. I found a shot of the truck. Here's the truck. There it is. Look at that bad boy oh, yeah. right there. Yeah, is I that, must is say that I... after the dirt had been removed. Uh, I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, it's got historical like for that this year. <laughs> I, I could, it's an 86. I could definitely do it. After 25 yeah, years. That, that's it. Ohio historical yep. plates. Here it comes. Yep. Yeah. It's, I, gonna be it's, it's not, not much to look at, but it's, you know, just an old cool truck, you know, no real AC. So my AC is opening up the cozy windows on it and, uh, letting that breeze in and, but yeah, it's it's cool. My uh, my dad actually gave it to me, so how much time we got. So it was it, it was kind of a cool little story. My uh, my dad had an old H two Hummer, tons of electrical problems. My uncle and I finally told him like you need to ditch that thing for it. Just freaking catches fire worse than that shit. So finally got him <laughs> traded off, and he uh, he ended up getting just a Dodge truck or something. So he had two trucks. Had no need for two trucks. So. Um, he, I guess kind of saved this whole thing out with my wife and we needed a truck. I didn't have anything and I feel that every homeowner should have one. And so, uh, I guess he kind of worked this whole thing out with her that, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm going to give him this truck. Do you think he'll, he'll fix it up and do all the stuff with, or you think he'll just let it, you know, rot to the side of the, on the side of the house. Well, I'm sure he'll work on it. So he came out one weekend and, uh, brought the truck out there. I was going to help him put a, a bull bar on the front of his new one. And so they showed up, both trucks are sitting there. And after we're done, he, uh, I, I went to the bathroom, washed my hands, come back out, and he has a Chilton's manual sitting there. It's like, hey, look through there, see if you can figure anything on this on this uh, factory or the aftermarket AC. It has aftermarket AC and nobody wanted to touch because they had no idea what the hell they're looking at. So I opened up Chilton's manual, and inside was the the title and the keys. So he's like, sure, if you want <laughs> That's it. That's awesome. Yeah. That is. That is. That's your old man looking out for you, and hopefully someday yep. – You'll be you'll be passing it on, right? Yep, yep, yep. I Heck fully yeah. intend now that the uh, this whole kitchen fiasco is done renovating <laughs> that I'll uh, I'll get started on that. Maybe rent a uh, dump truck for future dirt deliveries. Yeah, <laughs> a dump truck for what kind of deliveries? Dirt. Oh, brown dirt oh, specifically. I, I thought you said beer. Unless you want to drive like, down to you were you were getting after. I thought you said beer too. So. Yeah. No, I said dirt, yeah. dirt, dirt. I, I, I heard beer. I think that was a Freudian slip, I mean, Brian. I think I'm, you're I'm, you've got beer not, on the no. brain. Some, somebody <laughs> clip that out. Somebody clip that out. Uh, I'm perfectly fine out. with a dump truck of beer. I'm just yeah. saying. Yeah. <laughs> That's the I'm sure you beer, would be. I'll just sit underneath the gate as it opens up. I'll just be huh. 
<laughs> Dan, Dan the man. Uh, uh, what if if you could if you could get anything out of this year, out of this season? What is your what is your your major goals uh, that you're going after? I still want to get the uh, the pH drop down a little bit more. Um, that's kind of just my my end game. I'd like to get it down to six five, so I know that's not going to happen in in this year or next year or probably the year after that or the year after that. But I would like to get it down there just to see if I can. As a reminder, he's at seven right now. Yep. Yeah, I think backyard's still Doing seven work. two. Yeah. So mm-hmm. Ben, Ben the Lawn Guardian moved his half a point in an entire year, and uh, he's actually got a video coming out about that soon. And uh, and and you know, it was it was pretty. It was a pretty. It, uh, 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 strong example of uh kind of everything coming together correctly right uh so being uh insanely intensive about your your spray cycle regimen uh taking a little bit of risk with the elemental sulfur and and all of that coming together so it's doable but it's also high risk high reward right and uh and you know it's 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 kind of up to you of how much do you want to do you want to chase the dragon and uh and put it all at risk again because if you kill it you know that's you've got to you've got to start all over i'm just i'll have to nuke the whole backyard again don't tell my wife yeah that's right that's where i was going with that you may be <laughs> sleeping with those throw Uh-oh. pillows and a towel as a blanket. Get the throw pillows better be the lacy ones though well, oh, what yeah. questions I mean, do yeah. you have for us? Uh, you know, uh, and and eventually this is going to be segmented out, and I'm just kind of working off the sheet right now because I didn't put any of it together. But um, our producer Jay is Pink, fantastic, by the way. He uh, he is. Jay Pink gets it done for <laughs> he us. Is. Uh, Stump the pro is what he titled this, and uh, and I will. And and he commented here. Have a hard hitting question for the panel. Hit him. So let's hear it, mm. Daniel. I know I'm putting you on the spot here, but uh, throw hmm. it at us. Damn. And I'll tell you right now, if your question is is how to lower uh, soil phosphorus, I'm not going to recommend you buy something to do that. So we'll go ahead and get oh, that out of, out of the way. I've got one. So I had a, a comment on my channel about citric acid, and I was told how citric acid was highly antimicrobial and that I should be using phosphorus acid instead and with that i will not only be able to lower my ph but also be able to add phosphorus to my lawn um have you ever handled phosphoric acid i have not uh phosphoric acid is extremely corrosive um and it will dissolve lesser metals um I think in terms of, okay, let's see. When, when a root is, uh, w- when we talk about root exudates, uh, citric acid is emitted by the root and as part of that symbiotic give and take relationship between the soil and the, and the plant root, right? So that it tells you there that um, uh, it is actually giving up citric acid uh, for the microbes in return for uh, uh, the the rest of the process to go go down there. Phosphoric acid, if you sprayed, I mean, you would have to, I think you could do it with phosphoric acid, 
Um, but you would have to do extremely diluted rates. I think it would be similar to Ray's concoction for spraying sulfuric acid on turf um, because it is it is a strong acid. Uh, and, and, and boy, don't get it on your skin or any of that stuff because um, that is not... That is not a fun thing to handle. Also, any kind of microbial degradation that occurs is going to be so minute and so temporary, so temporary that it, within a blink of an eye, it would all be back to normal and you would never have any idea what actually happened. There was another one too. Uh, it, was, it was nitric acid. That was uh, extremely oh, high in Lord fumes. Have it, could, mercy. it could. Uh, yeah, uh, I did some reading Nitric when acid. I replied back. To, yeah, I, I did no. a little bit of reading when I started to respond back to this guy, and it's like, well, there's three different ones, and, and so citric acid is kind of the safer of them. It's maybe a little bit more costlier, but it's hell of a lot safer. <laughs> uh, again. What's your uh, what's your application interval for the citric acid? Uh, just a, a pound per thousand per month. <laughs> okay, okay. It, yeah, uh, you know, definitely not going to kill my lawn with one pound per thousand. I mean, I, I believe Matt, you said it the, the other day. You know, s dump it straight into a spreader, set it to thirty, and, and go walking across the lawn with it. You might you might do something to the lawn but I don't think one pound per thousand being diluted is going to do Jack Schmidt. And, and people are yeah, asking, why not hydrochloric acid? Why citric acid? And uh, Ray, I'll let, I'll let you talk about that. Why, why well, citric acid versus hydrochloric acid or sulfuric acid or phosphoric acid? Really, this is kind of your wheelhouse. Okay. Hydrochloric acid will immediately put in a high amount of chloride item ions into the soil, which will get actually become extremely toxic to the grass. So that's not the best idea. And when we talk about like nitric acid, do you folks understand what concentrated nitric acid does when it's in contact with organic matter? And when I say organic matter, that even includes gloves. Like say you are being safe and you put on nitrile gloves before you handle that nitric acid. What will happen is if you get any nitric acid on those gloves, the nitric acid will then proceed to oxidize the gloves and oxidize it so fast that the gloves will actually catch on fire with you, with your hand in them. So, I, I, I nitric acid just makes me afraid. And but then, what about the soil biology? Want to talk about? Ray? Yeah, soil biology, no problems because by the time the nitric it's acid is diluted down in a form that will not make your grass catch on fire, uh, it's not going to hurt the the microbes, and, and in fact. Most inputs, even the citric acid, have negligible effect on soil microbes. Negligible. Uh, but as far as the acids in their concentrated form, 
it is like the safest acid to be dealing with because let's see, Matt just said phosphoric acid will dissolve metals. True. Sulfuric acid, that is another funhouse in and of itself because sulfuric acid is very well known for getting very exothermic when it is in contact with water. For example, I've seen for myself plastic bottles or plastic buckets soften and sag when someone is pouring in sulfuric acid into the water too fast because that water literally goes above 212 degrees right then and there. So in most cases, I like citric acid because citric acid is allowed for use, for example, in candies. It's You can apply citric acid to apples to keep them from browning. That sounds a lot better to me than something that can, you know, instantly get hot or else start a fire. You know, citric acid starts to sound like a good, good alternative. Yeah. I think the moral so of the story is, here is, go ahead, go ahead, Daniel, go ahead. So, so the equivalent, so getting sulfuric acid on your hands is like the equivalent of a twelve-year-old grunt into his grandfather's uh, uh, Viagra stash. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Uh, nitric acid, forget it. I mean, nitric acid is just scary to me because I've actually seen nitric acid set something on fire. There's lots of videos on YouTube where you can see someone dip a glove, like a nitrile glove, in a uh, in a in a solution of nitric acid, and it does. I mean, it, it just it catches on fire. So Didn't they do that in Roger imagine, Rabbit? Do what? That's right. Didn't they do that in Roger Rabbit? Dip <laughs> the shoe into it. I don't know, but I mean, it's <laughs> Put the whole it's, cartoon. There's nothing. You, you know, again, you you, you kind of got to pick your poison and stick with it. And in terms of wide availability, wide safety, um, ease of use, ease of handling, uh, citric acid is just one of those that kind of checks off all those tick marks where uh, you're not having to handle a strong acid that is going to be detrimental to the effect of uh, the turf grass. I think you need to tell your commenter to go back to college and don't take, don't, Drop acid, take a pass fail. It's funny too because <laughs> I, I was trying to read it over like maybe I'm misconstruing something he's saying because like he had this whole name like Pete Moss, but it was like P E E T. I'm like, maybe Ooh, this guy clever. might be into lawn care a little bit, but then I started reading. I'm like, no, dude, come on. And he told me I I need to put a bunch of worms on my lawn too to uh, naturally aerate the lawn. Like, dude, have you, have you seen what worms do with all the castings all over the lawns and all that nasty crap on there? Hard pass. All right, so before we get wrapped up here, I was going to take a uh, a couple of uh, questions from the viewers right now. Uh, Telly had a good one. He said, what about humic acid, fulvic acid? Hell, what about deoxyribonucleic acid? I thought that was funny. Um, I'm not going to answer that question, by the way, because I know you know that. But uh, Daniel Bartholomew said, how long is citric acid effective in the lawn? And does it wash away with rain and irrigation? Ray, I'll let you tune into that. But short answer is yes. 
Yes. What your citric acid is actually doing for you is it is solubilizing your excessive calcium and magnesium carbonates and getting them out of your life. That's what it's actually doing. So I don't consider the effect totally temporary. So it's, you know, because I, I know there's various angles where, and I understand the agenda is that this all goes back to, in the minds of some, the only acceptable thing to do to soil is to add more and more humic and organic matter and not actually address the problem. And so, I'll use it to kind know, of segue. I see the in, agenda. Moving into the, I'll segue that into the next question because the next question was uh, how much humic acid do you have to put down before you see great results? I thought it was 40 ounces per thousand. Does anybody want to tackle that or are we just all going <laughs> to stare at the camera and try and avoid it? You see, I, here, here's the thing, Kevin. When I answer this, I get in trouble on the internet. <laughs> and so a lot of times I try and take these questions and sweep them under the rug. But I'll, I'll give you a very generic, optimistic answer. And the question is, is that nobody really knows. And there are certain situations where it could work positively for you. And then there could be some situations where it's going to be running into a brick wall for you. Um, and figuring out whether you fall into that category or not is case by case, situation by situation. Because in some instances where it does work, it doesn't make sense. And then in other areas where it doesn't work, that doesn't make sense either. Ryan, Ray, is there anything in particular more specific than that that you want to add? Not really, I can't. because, yeah, not really, actually, because the thing is, is that in most cases, what you do to a soil, it is extremely difficult to, for example, sterilize or kill all microbial life in the soil more than temporarily even. The closest I can think of to actually destroying microbial life in the soil is fumigation with methyl bromide and chlorpicrin or putting it under steam for two hours. Even then, all the microbes come back within 14 days. So forget about what anybody is trying to tell you about, oh, if you apply this fertilizer, you're going to kill all of your microbial life. Please tell them to go back to school, uh, lay off of the microbial life known as the shrooms, and take some microbiology classes. I know I did. That's why, you know, I can say things like this. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan? I, I, the, about the question on humic acid, I mean, I, I agree with what you said that it is truly hit and miss on where, where it does actually make a difference and where it doesn't. Um, 
and there there is some you know some good good data in ag on where it does make sense and where it doesn't i think better than turf right um a good a very good friend of mine close colleague um was actually in the business of uh developing several of these products not not long ago 10 15 or so years ago in the ag market and specifically so i got to see a lot of interesting data that came out of what was working and what wasn't working and particularly in some of the the most productive areas in cropping of the country right and so that's where they really honed in there on their research in turf uh, you know a lot of this is based on um a study that was done by dr eric irvin who was previously at virginia tech now at university of delaware fantastic scientist very very smart and bright guy uh, that's done a world of good outside of just that one study. And that one study looked at, you know, seaweed extract and humic acid uh, separately and together. And there was definitely a symbiotic relationship there relative to root depth, root mass, all that kind of stuff. And everybody really ran with that and kind of continues to use that. And I think it's a fine study. There's nothing wrong with it, you know, at least from my perspective. Um, but I'm not sure. I think that the, you know, defining what humic substances are and and categorizing them as high quality, low quality, medium quality, whatever, simply doesn't exist, right? There's no, um, there's nothing out there other than, you know, a company's word that says that, hey, this is, you know, X percent, but it might test higher or something like that. Like, okay, then show what it tests at, right? That's pretty easy to send a lab report and let us know what that's at. So again, it's not trying to talk any crap against anybody. It's just, again, uh, transparency and trying to figure out the why rather than, hey, just go ahead and put this down because it's cheap. You know, it's a value add. Go ahead and do it. It's worth it. Whatever. Uh, like you, Matt, like I'm still a budget, budget conscious guy when it comes down to it. And if there's something that doesn't do exactly what I know it's going to do, I have a very, very hard time of putting it in the program because I want things that I know what the results are and I can predict uh, with a reasonable degree of accuracy, you know, what the path from A to B, right, from where we are to where we need to get is going to look like. And that's that's my troubles uh, there. So, you know, what's the maximum rate to see an effect? Mess around and find out. That's the best thing I can tell you. Yeah. So Kevin, I'll, I'll tell you from experience, you know, I started using, you know, humic materials back in the early 2010s. Uh, and the, uh, I saw a lot of, I've seen a lot of, of different humic products come and go and some where I, I used and had success right out of the gate and it was undeniable success. Uh, and then others that I used and it would be real iffy. Um, I'm trying to uh, apex. Do you remember apex 10? Uh, uh, Ryan? Still out. Yeah. Central. Yeah. Uh, uh, Not quite the same. Yeah. Uh, it it used wonder. to be, it used to be the, um, uh, the, the, the North Dakota mine was, was like the first one that I used as apex 10, um, uh, came out of that North Dakota area or guess going. Yeah. Uh, actually, I think that one was from Pete Boggs in North Dakota, actually. It was it's derived peat, from that's peat. a that's a peat it's a peat yeah it's a peat based product there so yeah the two different leonardite deposits right are in like the gas gascoin gascoin uh north dakota and then mm -hmm. new mexico right 
though the from what I understand, what I understand is that the the North Dakota stuff is slightly more pure and a little bit easier to work with from a production standpoint. That's that's what I understand from some of again the colleague I had and some of uh, the folks I met through him that told me about how their production processes worked and things like that. So third party or what whatever. I, what I can tell you is that you know to to get to take a lawn from zero to eighty percent, humic acid was never the answer. Uh, it's NP and K that takes the lawn from zero to eighty percent. And if you're really good with NP and K, you could probably go zero to ninety percent, right? But anything beyond that, it's a um, uh, uh, it's situational, I guess, is is going to be the the gentlest way. Least, um, I don't I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings when I say it, but um, it, there's there's a certain level of unpredictability there that goes along with it, and uh, and so I think I think that's a nice, kind, non-hater statement about it. Uh, yeah, on that too is if 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 you want to take it as a slam or whatever, it's just like admit that I'm trying to think. I mean, other than NPK and water, can can Ray? Can you think of any other product that so that is ubiquitous that works no matter where you're at and what you do with turf? Sunlight. I'm trying to think. Sunlight, yeah. Well, okay. If you're in Alaska in December, that might be hard to come by. Jay Pink, I'm sorry, I can't. I can't help you there. Can you ask? Can we I buy some of that? Can we have it shipped to our door? You know, for the low, low price of whatever in Alaska. I don't know. This is um, all, all I'm saying. There is that to, to, we could do grow lights. We can call SGL right over in Denmark and have them come over. And we can talk to them about it. I, I'm, I'm sure that they would love to sell us grow lights for a lawn. In fact, you know, there might be a guy out in Iowa here someday that has a grow light on his lawn just because he needs to have it. Um, Ryan Norm, I'm looking at you. But in any regard, I'm just saying that to make statements like this that, hey, just do it because it works everywhere, uh, you know, I don't know. It's, Again, it's, a, just, it's, it's, a, it's a non-valid... Uh, um, uh, insinuation, I guess, would be the the easiest way to put it. You know, it would be like saying yeah. um, a uh, a triple twenty is the only fertilizer you would ever need, um, and that's not the case. Um, uh, uh, humic doesn't slow the release of in; it plays somewhere more in the space of uh, of uh, denitrification inhi inhibition and urease inhibition, not technically. Uh, uh, slowly delivering it, um, at least as far as all the research I've seen. And now they may refer to that as slowly available in, but in reality there, it's playing more in that enhanced efficiency space. I think claiming it as slow release is a bit dangerous. Dan, help me out here from a homeowner perspective. How does this stuff land with you? And again, I'm not trying to sit here and dig on people or talk crap. It's just more of, I'm interested in the psychology of this, of, of, right? So the three of us have grinded our proverbial uh, fallacies into the ground, learning, doing, making mistakes, all this stuff for years and years and years. So we're a little bit more chiseled and grizzled 
when it comes to product claims and things like that. But where, you know, where do these things land as just a guy, you know, the Joe six pack sitting there at home watching YouTube or whatever and thinking about his lawn, like where does it hit and where does it miss? Well, I, I guess I won't go into particular companies, but some of the stuff that's being thrown out there, you know, all this is humic acid and, you know, throw all this crap on the lawn, you know, it's, it's got humic and fulvics and whatever. I started looking at just the price of the bottle. So, so from a homeowner perspective, you know, you're going to look at the price of it. It's going to be your, your probably one of the first things you look at because you don't want to get yelled at for throwing $300 of, of you know, liquids on, on the lawn. So I started looking at it, it's like, okay, a hundred, hundred something dollars for a bottle of, of this humic acid. Well, at that point I start looking at, okay, is there cheaper alternatives and is it going to actually do anything? So I'm more willing to throw $20 at the same type of product than I am 120. So then I start, you know, mixing up. So, okay, I can get some, uh, one of the brands was like Terra Vita SP90 is some soluble humic acid powder that you can get on Amazon. So I, I bought some of that 20 bucks. Okay. You know, no big deal. Mix some of that up, start throwing it down. It's like, okay, I, I guess it's doing something, you know, helping the, the line out a little bit. So then I start comparing and start thinking, uh, from, from that perspective, okay, I just spent $20 to make all this. Why in the heck am I going to spend 120? That just seems like it's probably already just this same powder and they add water and ship it. So I'm paying, you know, a, a huge markup and, you know, whatever to, to send all the stuff out and shipping or whatever. So I started looking at some of that and just kind of figuring, you know, is it, is it really worth my money and will it actually work? And some of the stuff I'm seeing out there and I, one of the other, I just threw out another video, not to throw my own channel out there, but I, I did a, a slight review on the uh, liquid lawn aeration. Um, Petra Tools sent me a, a little four ounce bottle of this crap and, and I, don't spoil I, I, the review, I, I, dude. I know. I'll, I'll call it what it is. I mean, I'm 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 not scared. You know, what what am I going to do? Not not get monetized and not get my affiliate links. I mean, I I don't really care too much about that. So it was, you know, it's a little four ounce bottle of stuff, and and it's uh, sodium lauryl sulfate, which a lot of us know is a surfactant typically found in, in soap. So forty eight percent, we'll call it soap. And 52% water and a little bit of, of uh, rubbing alcohol. And this crap is like $15 on Amazon. What the hell? So I, I can go buy a, a dollar bottle of baby shampoo and go squirt that on the lawn and probably have just as good of effects. And is it really going to aerate my lawn? No. And Matt, you've you've already you know hashed that out numerous times with with the videos you've got. You know with the liquid aeration, everything, what it actually does. So I, I didn't really go too much detail of that, but you know, I, I'm seeing a lot of this stuff out there that's aimed toward homeowners and it's making me a lot more skeptical about these products that are being pushed toward them because it's a lot more of, you know, again, the acronym B, BMS. You know, so I, I'm becoming a lot more weary of it. And, and hopefully a lot of the other DIY people are as well. Yeah, and I think it's okay. Like, I think people take skepticism as rude or um, untrusting or anything. But, I mean, think about how we buy, you know, 
a used car or a new appliance or anything like that, right? We don't go into the store and be like, hey, sell me your favorite thing because you think it's your favorite, you know, stove or range for me to buy, right? Like you do your research, you, you, you know, want know what you want. You try to figure it out. Maybe it's the right thing. Maybe it's the wrong thing. And this certainly these purchases aren't that long-term, right? But um, I don't know. I think people are uh, very sensitive these days to um, just being skeptical and things like that and, and taking things that pros like us do every day and look at products and say, mm, no, or, hey, I'll try that. Or absolutely, yes, I'm all in, right? And And we're used to doing that day in and day out because we're getting hit up from all sides. And now it just seems like, um, it's filtered down and, and whatever. I think the, the, the homeowner or homeowners and DIY folks are being put into, uh, the bucket that again, I don't know. I'm not sure if they're, uh, looking at those folks as ignorant or dumb or th something like that. And Hey, we can market to them, you know, very easily or whatever, but, in any regard, I, you know, I'm, I'm always interested in the psychology from somebody who doesn't do this, you know, every day, day in and day out for a living and gets hit up by multiple people. So thank you for that. I really appreciate the yep. it, the int er, insight and the feedback. Yeah. And I, I. Oh, oh, he froze. His um, oh, damn. I'll, uh, I'll, so oh, I was over here Ooh. looking at some, uh, at, uh, one of the research. So, uh, Steve Darcy said, it, you know, it may bind to urea complex it and, uh, it will form a longer chain for the microbes to digest and not, not seeing that in the, in the data. Um, however, uh, urease activity was suppressed by the addition of humic acid and specifically, uh, for real, um, so over the control, um, it was statistically significant, but your nitrogen use efficiency was only about three or 4% different. Um, but if you used, uh, peat and, uh, peat derived, uh, humic substances. And so this would include, you would need. This is not going to be an off-the-shelf humic acid that you would use. This is, would contain all the insoluble matter that goes along with it, too. So when you do a humic extracted uh, uh, of linardite or whatever your or peat or whatever your your organic matter sources, remember, um, in a, in effect, humic is a saponified organic matter. Um, that if you the the real uh, uh significant improvement over nitrogen use efficiency and when i say significant i'm saying like upwards of 10% or more um or it's looking like 9 10 uh, 3 uh 3 uh, so you know lower rates uh and then as you go up to higher rates it tends to get a little better closer to that 10 to to 9% increase in nitrogen use efficiency so, you know, how I'm, you know, going off the cuff here, um, and that, that sounds probably not quite as, uh, as strong as, um, our conventional urease inhibitors. I know you said you had some, some problems with, with Uflex too. And again, Uflex has been shown that not in every situation, uh, to also be effective. Um, they've, they've done farm flyovers to, uh, uh, rate quality indexes in the in the flyover 
and where they would expect to see uh, higher values out of crops, they haven't seen it. And so, um, and Ryan, I think you can talk a little bit about that, about how denitrification inhibitors are, are um, not always the go-to. And this is why when I say, you know, slow release and enhanced efficiency are not the same thing. And I don't think it's credible or, uh, or, or even right to uh, uh, combine those two as, uh, as one and the same. They're, they're not. They're incredibly different. No, they are. And, and so for our audience, you know, there's two different technologies that are sold out there in the marketplace. So the first is a urease inhibitor, right? Urease is the enzyme that breaks down urea, forms it into ammonium and it become, makes it plant available, right? So by adding this um, component to a fertilizer blend, we can actually slow that process down and to an extent control the release of that fertilizer. So two popular products that um, really started that, that uh, market were Umax and Uflex. And so they were sprayed with varying rates of these uh, urease inhibitors, right? And so Uflex was like a four week, four to six week product and um, Umax was eight to 12 weeks, something like that. So then you know, other, th- other products that have come out are nitrification inhibitors. And so these came from the ag market where when we're spraying, or excuse me, when we're applying uh, urea, to open ground that's especially non-irrigated, we can spray this product onto urea and stop the volatilization that would occur if that product's not irrigated in within, say, 12 to 24 hours, right? And so those are two very, very different technologies, but they get sold, like what Matt's saying, kind of across the board is the same, and that's not exactly true. And so that's one thing to consider too, is when you're doing, you know, apps, particularly urea is to consider how you're going to put that down. And so irrigating in or applying ahead of imminent rain are always your best bets with that product. Uh, if you're applying foliarly, so if you're going to spray that over the top, you know, your peak uh, uptake into the plant is somewhere between like four and five hours. You know, you have roughly uh, 80% or so of that end is in the plant and the rest is going to get washed off of the leaf and go down in the soil and uh, hopefully get picked up by the roots. And so, again, just trying to understand that part of it, you know, there was a lot of good work done, Matt, at uh, University of Illinois, Bruce Branham actually did uh, this probably back eight, 10, 12 years ago, something like that about, you know, those urease inhibitors and the denitrification inhibitors. And basically that, you know, particularly with an, denitrification inhibitors as long as you got that product watered in within say 12 to 24 hours your losses in most cases um i can't remember what the critical temperature was maybe 85 86 something like that were low such so low that it was insignificant right to your application it was above those temperatures in longer durations of time is what affected your end rate as that stuff gassed off right so again just understanding the best practices around one choosing the right fertilizer and understanding the technology that's in it for one for two making sure that you're putting down the right rate at the right time and then understanding the follow-up care that you need to do to either water that product in or if you can let it lay uh, you know for a longer duration of time before you have rainfall or irrigation coming over top of it so again it's it's stuff like that that makes you feel good because oh hey it's slow release it's this it's that well understand the technology of what you're using understand your end sources and um what that response that plant's response time should be 
uh, once you put it down, right? That's a, that's the most important thing. Ray, anything to add? I think you basically covered it, Ryan. It's uh, because I actually use quite a bit of Umax actually, and the way I use it is, it is not my primary nitrogen source. It is more like what I do to make sure that my application doesn't fall off at exactly the three to four week mark. You know, I use it so that I know I'm spraying every month, but by adding Umax as up to say 25% of the nitrogen actually being applied, I get it's such that the grass growth is always even. It's not a case of surge growth followed by the, the grass really falling off when it's time you know, to get more nitrogen, for example. Yeah, no and question. I, and that's, that's the, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say it's, it's it, even though it, you know, it, these are touted as newer technologies, if you kind of go back on the chemistry, you know, in butyl thiophosphoric acid, yeah, that's a little bit on the newer side before that was used as a urease inhibitor. But uh, the dicyanamide, uh, prior to that, there was calcium cyanamide, right? And uh, and that was kind of like the OG uh, uh, urease, slow-release urease inhibitor and kind of a cure-all too, right? So it offered insect control. Uh, it, feed, it fed the plant. It had a carbon component to it. You know, it was all these things that was cool and wonderful and, uh, and solved a lot of problems, right? And that was kind of the OG, and then that morphed into disinamide, which just turned out to be so much cheaper. And when we're talking about cost-based returns, um, you know, the, the cost per acre to use something like a humic-based substance versus the cost per acre of uh, a urease inhibitor uh, or a denitrification inhibitor, it, it's still significantly cheaper to use uh, one of those urease and, or denitrification inhibitors than it is to use a humic substance at this point. One thing I want to get your both of your takes on is the there's a product. Uh-oh, camera died. Don't worry about that. Um, a product that's out from a major manufacturer that has done done pretty well, but the humic coated urea. And again, that's a technology that is older, right? If you look back at the data and the research going back into uh, corn and some other crops back in the late 80s or so, that saw some benefit to it. But again, it was a cost to benefit thing way back then. And only since has been um, put, put back into the turf market. So just curious on your takes on that, gentlemen. You know, I guess it comes down to the statistical significance of how that would compare to, um, again, because if you look at the the release curves and uh, I don't believe they've done any studies on nitrogen use efficiency specifically out of that product, at least that I haven't seen, uh, but at least what I have seen out of it mimics pretty much every other urease or denitrification inhibitor that's out there. So it's an alternative. Um, I don't necessarily see it as a replacement for, uh, because as far as the impact it had, it wasn't a big enough gap to justify the cost to go that direction. Right. 
Well, I don't. I haven't seen anything out of using that product that you describe such that it'll make me change what I do. Because for one thing, when you have that quote-unquote humic on the urea, you still have the issue of that no longer being tank mixable with materials like micronutrients or being tank mixable with phosphorus if you needed it. So that company has not solved that problem because if you're going to talk about applying humic coated onto urea prills, then you're talking to me about applying that urea as a standalone application, assuming that your NPK, etc., is all in order otherwise, and you have no need for chelated or immediately available micronutrients. So at that point, I am thinking that this becomes another product that is just taking advantage of a buzzword and I despise buzzwords being used by various industries and commercial sectors. I, I, I kind of walk away from that. Not my thing. <laughs> Ryan, you're muted. Yeah, you're muted, Ryan. Unmute yourself. Hit the button. What is this? I was going to say, it's... <sighs> yeah, I mean, it's my first stream where I'm going to say uh, synonyms for penis or something like that and get caught. So, um, yep. It's, you can say that. It's a, it's a part of the human anatomy. Come on. We've all seen them. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I don't know. I was just curious on how much you all had played with that and, and done anything with. And, again, I understand the premise of it, and there is, there is some good data to suggest that there's some benefit. And, again, that was on corn, and that was, you know, 30-plus-year-old data. But, um, yeah, it's always interesting when – something old becomes new again, right? And you always have to question the motives of, well, why, right? And there, there's definitely been a lot of that stuff in turf over, I mean, geez, really over the last 100 years even. Like if you go back and look at uh, USGA, you know, the United States Golf Association green records that were put out, you know, starting back in the, the 20s and kind of see that snake oils have existed for a long time. Not to say that any of the stuff that we've talked about this evening is snake oil, but Again, that the idea of making something new and putting buzzwords like Ray, what you said behind stuff, it's it's not negative. And the reason that we're skeptical is because it's been cyclical and it's happened over and over and over again. And what stood the test of time, right? We talked about Ray, you said it, that NPK is for you. And I think I've said it before, maybe not in these quarters, but in other places that, you know, you date all the fun stuff like biostimulants and all that other good stuff, but you marry NP and K. That's who you go home to at night, take care of, sleep on the couch with the little pillows. Real quick, before we or close this out. NPK is such that you don't need to sleep on the couch. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> because it loves you back unconditionally and doesn't right. judge you if you get brown, black, red, or gray dirt. It doesn't care. It doesn't care. 
the uh, so I was sent uh, Gravy Lookout uh, uh, um, sent me an article, and this is this is from the Journal of Applied Ecology, and this is directly from the headline: Roundup causes high levels of mortality con- uh, following contact exposure in bumblebees. Now, what's interesting as you go down and look at what they used, they used uh, Roundup Ready to Use as well as Roundup Proactive. And what both of these contain are in can surfactants. And why this is so misleading and appealing towards the scared, the, towards the fear in everybody, um, is soap and water will kill a bee, will kill a wasp. Um, and, and so basically the use of any surfactant is in effect a soap of sorts and thus can cause, uh, death to an insect. And that is likely why, uh, they, uh, what it says down here, surfactants and other co-formulants and herbicides and other pesticides may contribute to global bee declines. We recommend that as a precautionary measure until co-formulant identities are made public. Label guidelines for all pesticides be altered to explicitly prohibit application to plants when bees are likely foraging to them. And okay, I get it. Totally get it. I, this is not going to be an anti-bee thing. But again, reading the headline here is that Roundup causes high levels of mortality following contact exposure in bumblebees. When in reality, it is the in-can surfactant portion of Roundup that is causing it. And it's not just in Roundup. It is in herbicides from major manufacturers, from uh, Syngenta, from uh, Bayer, from uh, New Farm, Prime Source, Control Solutions. You pick your poison, all of these are going to contain a surfactant or emulsifier of some sort that has this potential. So to unfairly point at Roundup as being the the major player here uh, contributing to the decline of bee death is, one, it's not accurate, and two, it's not a fair statement. This is an attempt to scare people into submission, and I think that is such horseshit that Everything that is fed to us at this point is with the intent of scaring us. I am fully convinced of that. There's very rarely, rarely can I turn on the news or can I open the newspaper and there's not some sort of article with the, the, the pure intent of that article based on the content contained in that article. It is only to scare me. And I'm over it and I'm done with it. And uh, and I, I I wish there was something that could be done with it done about it, but unfortunately there isn't. And so you know you you take it as is for what it's worth. But uh, you know I'll tell you right now I'm not going to cave to it um, because I, I I spent enough of my life being being scared and uh, and I'm I'm over it. And just like this is being fed to me on a damn uh, in, in a spoon, no no thank you. This is garbage. This is trash. Um, anyway, yeah, I, I, I'll save my real comments for the show after the show gravy. How about that? I do, I do want to touch on something real quick related to that is that again, hey, do you, do you smell that? Do you smell it? It's no. controversy. It's controversy. <laughs> there was some controversy this week and, and, uh, I, I just want to address it by saying that, um, there, there are a lot of people that have worked really, really hard to do the right thing and, and do it repeatedly and do it when no one's watching. And I think that is um, where some of the criticism lies 
with some of the stuff that we talk about here, we talk about after. And again, it's because we have, we have done it. And, and so many of the people that are in the same shoes that we are have done it. Right. And so I want you to throw this up, Jay Pink, if you can, the link I just sent you. But people are like, well, you know, there's no, you know, there's no malice or there's no um, ill intent or anything like that to, to show what somebody's doing and sell a product and things like that. And I'm not here to talk about commercial interest. I don't care if you sell, you know, life insurance on YouTube. I really don't. I don't care. But what I do care about is when you take the ownership of providing content that's going to show people how to use something that you do it safely and you do it properly. And so people say, well, you know, there's no, there's no way that, you know, somebody misting uh, a sulfonylurea product into the air through a hose and sprayer is going to cause any grief, right? Well, so again, this is all about public perception. This is all about um, how we are perceived as an industry. And that goes all the way down to the people at the homeowner DIY level that apply, right? And so there are literally exhibits, you know, that are made every day of this poor, you know, poor choices, poor behavior, whatever the case might be. And whether it's willingly or ignorantly, it, it's all wrong. It doesn't matter. You know, nobody, it doesn't matter if I didn't know if the speed limit was 65 or I didn't care if the speed limit was 65, I was still speeding. And that's the same case here. And so a, a case I want to talk about here, Montgomery County, Maryland, and I'm not, my, guys, we don't have to go get too deep into this, but I just want to highlight this for a second. JP, if you could, this is the FAQ for them. Scroll down to the third one. How can I easily tell if a pesticide is not allowed on a lawn, playground, or other specified area? If the product has an EPA registration number, it is generally not allowed. That's literally Whoa. everything that you see on YouTube. That's literally everything that you see on YouTube not allowed. And why is that? Because of public reception, because of what Matt talked about, and it doesn't matter what you want to do, say, or apologize for. It is the kind of stuff that we see that is wrong that we're not afraid to call out because it's wrong, that is going to ultimately affect this, right? This is not me on a soapbox. This is me being real because if you think this is the only place that this is happening, go visit Maine. Go visit other places on the East Coast, Connecticut, Massachusetts, right? Go visit places on the West Coast and even in middle America, right? Okay. There was a, a bill that was introduced in the Illinois um, state legislature to ban the sale of glyphosate everywhere in the state of Illinois, right? And so again, not here to debate all that kind of stuff and, and get into those uh, political or policy or regulatory issues. It is more about what is being put out in the content and the responsibility that folks have, regardless of what your experience level is. It's your job to live up to the standards, not for other people to be like, well, you know, you should have followed the label because even though I, you know, made a video about it, showed you how to use it and sold it to you, I absolve all myself of all responsibility. That's horseshit. That's horseshit. So that's a great way to end the show. Daniel, do you have any closing thoughts for us? I really enjoyed having you on. I'm sorry it was late, but I had to read that book again on just being positive, <laughs> really being positive. No, I don't have anything else to add. I mean, I think what you were just going on there, you know, kind of kind of nailed it. You know, it doesn't matter if you're a DIY guy or a professional or whatever. I mean, read the labels and apply the stuff correctly, you know. Uh, I definitely try to uh, do my best, you know, on camera or off to uh, not do anything stupid. And I'm sure if I did that, Ray would probably yell at me for it. So <laughs> I you have uh, some good turf parents that are here to guide you, you know? And, yes. And, and I am 
extremely grateful for that. Uh, being able to, you know, rely on you guys at any given moment to, you know, even bounce off any simple questions, even if something very simple to, uh, you know, run stuff by you to make sure that I am doing stuff right. You know, I, I try to read and, uh, but sometimes if I still have questions, I, I at least have some, like you said, turf parents to, uh, lean on. Well, we appreciate you, son. <laughs> yeah, I can have $20. <laughs> yeah, we're going to pass you down the, someday we're going to pass you down the, the turf F-150 that's had, uh, you know, nitric acid, phosphoric acid in the back, the buds melted out and the radio doesn't work right. But by God, you're still going to have 260 air conditioning. You roll those two windows down, go 60 miles an hour. It'll be cool enough. It'll be fine. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> Everyone, uh, in the show description down below, uh, go click the link and subscribe to the Lawn Stripes and uh, and watch his his review of uh, of a liquid aeration product. So that way, I get some of the heat diverted from me. Right, uh, pass that all on to Daniel, and then I'll jump in the comments and be a big strong boy there, where I can hide behind the keyboard because I don't have enough of a public uh, presence to to be able to handle myself. Um. All right. So thank you, everybody. Thank you, Mr. DeMay, for tuning in. And by the way, I didn't get to go into the, the details, the stats on the, on the beginning of the show here. But uh, we were talking about why the panel is put together the way it is. Uh, Ryan uh, not only started as a golf course superintendent, but manages one of the absolute busiest uh, uh, baseball parks in all of America. And, uh, and when I say busiest, they have maybe the, the, the highest or close to the highest number of games per year in any municipal district uh, across America. And it's not just one field he maintains. Uh, we're talking an entire region of fields that he maintains, not just directly as a professional manager, but also indirectly as a, as a, uh, a solidified consultant in the industry. Uh, you don't have to dig too deep in the industry to find out what Ryan DeMay does for a living. Uh, there's no secrets here. And so that is why we assembled the team of Ray and Ryan. And, uh, and I just get to get on here and be the keyboard warrior and the, and the, uh, the mic eater himself. So thank you everybody for tuning in. I truly appreciate it. Ryan, don't say a damn word. I will strike you. And, uh, Oh, by the way, the show after the show for the members only is coming up next. And remember, uh, if you, uh, want to stick around for that, that's not going to be for everybody. That's not going to be for the faint of heart. And if you're not into those types of things, stay away. It's perfectly okay. You do not have to watch. If you don't want to hear bad words, you don't like bad words. If you don't like bad attitudes, Attitudes, uh, or you get offended easily. I'm telling you right now, it's not for you. And that is 100% okay. We do not fault you for it. In the meantime, we will. Oh, by the way, the link will be up for 10 minutes and 10 minutes alone in hashtag dirty deeds. And uh, of course, the members will know that when they join. Uh, have a good one. We'll catch you on the flip side.